everyone, welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by veteran political strategist and commentator Joel Payne. In 2016, he was the director of African American advertising for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Prior to that, he served as deputy press secretary for the late former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. He is a political commentator for CBS News and host of the Here Comes Pain podcast. Joel, thank you so much for joining us and passing judgment with us. Thank you so much, Jessica. Excited to be with you. So we were talking just a little bit before, and I said, you know, I really want to focus on Biden's first year in office and take a step back from what we sometimes do, which is there's breaking news and really take stock of what happened. And you said something that I thought was so interesting, which is it's really a tale of two years. So can you share now, both for me and for the listeners, what do you mean by that? So I think about 2021, I mean, it's not hard to kind of divide up the year going all the way to the summer of 2021. The first part of the year, obviously, look, the president was inaugurated with a lot of wind at his back. He got the surprise of what happened in Georgia. So he then had the Senate majority, albeit slim, along with the House majority. And I think there was a plan to immediately address COVID and to instill confidence in the public and to restore um, some sense of normalcy in the presidency, right? That was the first six months. And that was all on schedule. I mean, if you think about it, they were able to plan for almost everything that happened all the way through June, July, including that big July speech where we declared um, you know, freedom from COVID and that was supposed to be the turn the page moment. That's kind of the dividing line. And then what happens after that? A number of things that the president and his team could not predict. Afghanistan happened. Consumer prices rose. All of the machinations with Build Back Better got very messy, and that was very public. The infrastructure bill got very messy, and that was public. And you had a loss of confidence in the president and all of his core competencies, which really was the reason why he got elected, those started to wither away. So his popularity that was consistently in the mid-50s dropped to the mid to low 40s. And he lost a lot of that, by the way, with people in the middle of the country, not partisans, right? I think he still got pretty strong support within a Democratic Party, but it's those independents and people in the middle and frankly, people who were alienated by Donald Trump, who went to Joe Biden, they, I think, started to have concerns about the concept of the Joe Biden presidency after, again, that that summer. And I think it really started with Afghanistan and it spiraled after that. Basically, everything you previewed, I want to pick up on throughout our conversation. And I want to ask you, I love this idea of the dividing line between, you know, the tale of two years, where it's really the first six months and the second six months. I want to focus on something you said, which is that so much of, I think, his mandate was to restore confidence and normalcy. How do you think he's gone about doing that so far? What are specific steps that he's taken? Has he been successful at it? Yeah, look, and and again, just going back to that construct that I laid out, I I think the president got off to a good start. And, you know, actually, you even have to kind of go back a little bit further than that. So Joe Biden, if you just look at him as a political figure, let's go the entire 40 years of Joe Biden in the public space. There was this one, I think, idea and caricature of him that existed 
up until, you know, Barack Obama selected him as his vice president. It was of this occasionally kind of this quixotic senator who had these interesting ideas, who was well-liked and well-respected, but I think he presented a certain way publicly, probably not a way that was marketable nationally, just to be candid. Barack Obama chooses him as his vice president, and he is really successfully branded as middle-class Joe, Uncle Joe, um, the person that can relate to someone in Scranton, someone in Schenectady, right? That's, that's who Joe Biden became when he became Barack Obama's vice president. And then he became a figure of great compassion because of, you know, he already had the public loss of his um, family members, his first wife and child early on in his life. And then that happened again when his son, Bo, died from cancer towards the end of the Obama administration, right? So you've got all these evolutions of Joe Biden. And then you kind of come to post-Obama presidency Biden. And he's this distinguished statesman. And again, he's beloved and he's Uncle Joe. And then you get to the campaign. And what started to happen early in that 2020 campaign was Vice President Biden, I think, started off presenting and acting as if he was Senator Biden again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he was a, a bit kind of dithering. There, there was a little bit directionless and a little bit listless. And I think actually, if you remember, there was a big reset in the middle of that Biden campaign where he brought on new people, where he kind of turned the page and it really all hinged on what happened in South Carolina. I, I, thank you for giving me the kind of 45 seconds to lay that out. I think that's all important to kind of think about with the Joe Biden journey, because then you kind of get to that South Carolina forward moment. He was transformed, right? He became a crusader on behalf of African-American voters, on behalf of the Democratic base. The base got behind him that he was the person that was going to ultimately be the best chance to defeat Donald Trump. And that run of that Joe Biden lasted essentially through the summer of 2021. So you've kind of got like a 15, 16 month run of Joe Biden being the best version of himself politically, nationally marketable, a consistent cut through um, middle America branding that really works across the board. I think that has starting to fall, started to fall off, uh, you know, and, and, and Jessica, I'll hand it back over to you in a second. But I guess something I would say is when Biden was elected, um, I remember I was, you know, we're, we both obviously have a relationship with CBS News and I was on and I talked about the, the kind of three legs of Bidenism. And I'll see if I can remember him here. They say a, a rule in speaking is you should never uh, num numerize the things if you can't remember all three of them. But it's I am a decent person, his decency. I am compassionate and I am credible and competent, right? That's, that's Bidenism, really, if you think about it. I can do this job because I have experience. I am a good, decent person that can bring the country together. And I have compassion for you because I know what you went through. Somewhere along the way, there has been a real breakdown of that brand for President Biden. I don't think it's impossible to get it back, but I think that is the path back to Joe Biden being the best version of himself. So I want to pick back up on the idea of what caused the breakdown. But because you mentioned the campaign, this is something that I, obviously people in political circles love to talk about. But a big moment of the campaign, I think, was his choice of vice president, because 
Obviously, he was the former vice president, as we talked about. That was key to his ability, I think, to successfully run, to run as President Obama's vice president. What do you think now, looking back a year later, of his choice of Kamala Harris to be vice president? Do you think he's happy about the decision? Did it pay off? Is it a bigger liability than maybe he expected? Where do you think we are in that choice? I am a very bottom line person when it comes to politics. Regardless of any conjecture or any feelings about it, no one is happy in an administration when uh, your public support is flagging and when you're struggling. And that's across the board. That's cabinet secretaries, that's staff. And yes, that's the vice president, right? And, and I'm sure everybody wants to figure out how do we fix all of these things that ail us, including the, the, the branding of the vice president. I don't think she is the highest of high things on the list of things that Joe Biden needs to necessarily be worried about prioritizing, addressing today. I do think that there was a hope that Vice President Harris could be the kind of partner in government, frankly, that Joe Biden was able to be for Barack Obama, right? I think there was an imagination that that Vice President Harris could do that. I think the challenge, and I've talked about this in a couple of public spaces as well, is if you just look historically, particularly recent history of our vice presidents, they tend to be people that can credential our presidents. Let's just kind of just name them off, right? Mike Pence, credentialed Donald Trump. Right, right. Joe Biden, credentialed Barack Obama. He was an outsider. Biden was the insider. Dick Cheney, credentialed George W. Bush. You go back to Al Gore. Most people don't, they forget this. Al Gore was a very well-known person in the Beltway. Bill Clinton was the outsider. Even H.W. Bush and Reagan. Reagan was the outsider. H.W. Bush was the known Beltway quantity, right? Vice President Harris is only similar to one vice president in the last 40 years. It's Dan Quayle. They were young newcomers who were positioned as bridges in their party to a new generation and as people who could kind of complete their president's coalition. Now, she effectively did that in the campaign. She was absolutely able to complete that Biden coalition. I think what she has had a hard time doing is pivoting to how do I be the type of governing partner that Joe Biden needs? Again, I think it's possible. We're still relatively early in this administration. We're only 25% through. But I think it is important to understand the journey of the American vice president over the last 40 years to get maybe why the Harris vice presidency has had its fits and starts. I love that context that it really is adding kind of resume heft. And in all cases, something that the candidate thinks is missing, but in this case, something different, which is not kind of institutional knowledge. It's a bridge, as you said, to the next generation. So because you said the only person I see like this is Dan Quayle, and obviously he was the vice president for President Herbert Walker Bush, who was a one-term president, I guess now I have to ask the dangling question, which is how big a chance do you think there is that if he runs again for President Biden, this is not going to be a successful re-election campaign? Or is it just insane to ask because we have no idea what the world looks like in two years? It's not insane to ask. Uh, it's what we do. We opine on this stuff. Um, and and I think the best resource we can have for answering these questions is like what most recently happened, right? Like that is what we're going to go off of. I would say right now, if there was an election in six weeks, Joe Biden would not be well positioned to win re-election. The good thing is there's not an election in six weeks. So Joe Biden has a lot of time to essentially rebuild that public image 
and re-earn that trust from the American people that carried him into the office with a lot of wind at his back. I will say there was always a feel, I think, of Joe Biden as somewhat of a, not a savior, that's the wrong word, but someone who was stepping into the breach to help bring the country together and to help Mm -hmm. provide a transition from Donald Trump. And for some Democrats, historically, that'll be enough, right? To say, hey, Joe Biden, as president, was able to essentially put Humpty Dumpty back together again and just be a bridge from Donald Trump, which we viewed as an unacceptable disaster, right? As the extinction level event, his reelection could not happen because it was the thing that was most egregious to every Democrat in America. It's why, again, to my point earlier about President Biden, why he was able to so quickly uh, get support to circle around him um, after a pretty tough primary is because every Democrat understood the mission was to beat Donald Trump. So, look, I think there's always been a chance that Biden was going to be a transitionary figure. I think there's still that chance. I think also the world moves so fast And I think the thing that you and I have not talked about during this conversation, and I'm almost, I should probably pay a penalty for not doing this, is we haven't said COVID. And COVID is the thing that I know everyone's tired of talking about, but COVID is the reason why Joe Biden is president. By the way, I think COVID might be the reason why Glenn Youngkin beat Terry McAuliffe in Virginia a few months ago. And I think unless this administration is able to get a handle on COVID, it would be the reason why they would be a one-term presidency if it came to that. COVID is the opponent that cannot be defeated at the ballot box. COVID is the thing that has taken down one presidency and it could take down another one. It's so fun that you say this, Jill, because this was my number one topic. Let's talk about the handling of the pandemic. But then, of course, our conversation went in a slightly different way. And I want to actually address the pandemic first from maybe a strange angle, which is asking you to look, kind of zoom out and say, how is it possible that former President Trump, who really tried to undermine our country's institutions, who I think attempted, of course, after the election, a self-coup, but who in so many ways was leading us down the path to an authoritarian rule, how is it possible that without the virus, he wins re-election? What does that say about politics and voters in America? And then let's get to you know President Biden's responses to the pandemic. I think it says that pragmatism is high among the American people. And look, sometimes that can manifest as a good thing, but sometimes it can manifest out of the interest of, of the American public. I think it's very possible that Donald Trump could have won had COVID not, I don't mean to say this inartfully, but COVID not intervened in history, right? I think that's very possible because you had a pretty strong economy before COVID. And I kind of think, and this was the fear, look, I worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. The thing that we cautioned people about was you normalize Trump and you normalize the chaos and Mm -hmm. people stop realizing that it's chaos. If there's a chaotic thing that's happening every day, which I actually think If there was a strategy to the Trump presidency, it was that, which has overwhelmed them with chaos and they don't know what to focus on. I think that's it. But chaos could not drown out COVID for Donald Trump. That was the one thing that was undefeated in the Trump presidency was COVID. He could not overcome the natural occurrence of this once in a generation pandemic that has completely subsumed us for the last going on now three years. And 
I think politically it took him down. In terms of your, just specifically, I'll quickly answer your question, though, about what does that say about the country? Look, what does it say about the Democratic Party that Joe Biden substantively did not perform the best of any of those mm-hmm. in that primary, and yet he ultimately was the one that ended up with the support? I think it means that there was a subset of voters, I'll just say who they are, I think they're African-American voters in South Carolina, who essentially said, this is all very nice. Thank you, Elizabeth Warren. Thank you, Pete Buttigieg. Thank you, others. We appreciate your attempts at intervening in the debate. Mr. Biden, can you go beat Donald Trump? That's what happened, right? Black voters in South Carolina said, this is all great. This is all nice. You are not able to do this thing that has to happen or else the country won't survive. Joe Biden, go beat Donald Trump. And there was some wisdom in that. So I'm applying that lesson to the electorate more broadly and saying, if people feel like a, a, a public official serves their benefit, I think they mm-hmm. will look past perceived imperfections. And I know that is a way too kind uh, metaphor to use for Donald Trump. Well, no, but I think you've hit on something so important, which is that you can flood the airwaves with chaos and lies and you can talk about a lot of things, whether or not you're speaking truthfully or not, but what the voters, you said, you know, they're pragmatists. And so we really do vote on these things that impact our daily lives. And, or at least this is my perception that a lot of people are really focused on who's going to make my life better in terms of my job, my kid's school, my ability to pay for health insurance, you know, the quote unquote kitchen table issues that we care more broadly about the existential stuff. But when we really walk into the ballot box, it's who's going to help us get out of this pandemic. Look, I think a thing that I've thought a lot about that Hillary Clinton campaign experience in 2016. And all I remember is, and look, I I made ads, right? That was part of my job was to make ads, particularly targeted towards African-American voters. And I just remember our entire ad program, it was all about pointing out Donald Trump as this kind of this virus. (laughs) I mean, again, I don't, I, I, I don't mean to, you know, obviously we're dealing with an actual virus now, but we positioned Donald Trump as this, this, this thing that was going to intercede in our culture and in our politics, and it was going to take over, and we couldn't allow it to take hold. And we kept reminding voters of that. And you know what voters said? Yeah, we know. Right. (laughs) Voters said, we know. That's why we're sending him there. So what does this say about what President Biden's priorities should be? I mean, I worry about this in a different way when it comes to the January 6th House Select Committee, because I have this absolute dread about what happened and that it could happen again, but in a much more effective form. And on the one hand, I feel like how on earth could you have a former president, as I said, really attempt to self-coup? How could you have people engage in this type of violent insurrection and not do something about it? And then at the same time, I have a fear that if Democrats focus too much on that, then they become the party of looking back and, you know, the quote unquote, you know, obsession with Trump and not the party of what am I going to do to try and make your life better? What's, how can I make Wednesday better for you? Do you worry about focus on things other than the direct practical impact of the daily life issues? 
Jessica, I worry about everything. I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a Democrat. I'm a, I'm a Democratic uh, political strategist. I, I wake up and go to sleep every night in a panic. Um, <laughs> but to your question, what do I worry about? I guess I would say this. I think there's Trump and there's Trumpism. And let's just take that Virginia governor's race with Terry McAuliffe and Glenn Youngkin. And I, look, I think people way too much try to reduce things to one outcome and try to extrapolate a lot of different conclusions from that. Glenn Youngkin is the type of Republican that had to be on the ballot in Virginia, period, mm-hmm. hard stop. There were other alternatives that would have been too extreme and that would have alienated too many voters. He, by the way, almost still wasn't enough. It was a close race, <laughs> you know, like it worked only just by, you know, the hair on his chin. Did it work? He didn't really blow out Terry McAuliffe. He won a pretty close race. So it had to be that kind of Republican. And they had to manage Trump a certain way where you had to keep the elements of Trumpism in place. But you could not allow Trump himself to become part of the voting equation. And that's the trick that Republicans would have to do all over the country. Can you do that? Like, I've heard people say Glenn Youngkin is the model of like how Republicans can hold power in the post-Trump era. No, you can't, because Glenn Youngkin could not win a Republican primary in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, in Michigan, in Texas, in Arizona. Glenn Youngkin can't win those primaries, and Glenn Youngkin type of candidates can't win those primaries. So the, the, the point that I'm making here is I think there is a Trump thing and there's a Trumpism thing. You have a lot of Trump wannabes that are going to try to get on the ballot and in certain places they are. And that's not going to serve the benefit of the Republican Party. Like in Ohio, um, J.D. Vance and Mandel and that crowd, they're trying to run a certain way. And I'm sure they'll get on the ballot, but that race will be either a lot closer or it won't turn out the way Republicans want it to because they're going to alienate, you know, the folks in the middle that they need to win. It worked in Virginia because they found the right candidate. And I don't I don't know if that can work around the country. Joel, you've just brought us to, I think, our next topic. You're talking about, you know, these people will appear on the ballot and that's the midterms. And but maybe right before I get to the midterms, this is something nagging that I wanted to talk to you about, which is Democrats control all the levers of power. Democrats control the Oval Office. Democrats control the Senate by the slimmest of majorities. Democrats control the House. I want to know in a moment your predictions for how this will look a year from now. But how much do you think it's fair for voters to be really frustrated that President Biden, frankly, has not been more successful in implementing his legislative agenda? I mean, we can both say, well, it's the filibuster and, you know, you can't unilaterally just say I'm wishing away the filibuster. But I think there are moments where President Biden maybe didn't treat the problem of the filibuster as seriously as he should have. And as a result, I think voters are going to look and say a Democrat in the White House, Democrats in the Senate and the House. And where are the big promises fulfilled? So certainly there have been some achievements, but not every achievement. We can't get a floor for voting rights protections, build back better, not pass the massive social safety net that Democrats promised, lingering, potentially faltering forever. How much is it fair for voters to say, Democrats, why haven't you checked these boxes? You're in power. 
again, as a bottom line person, it's fair for voters to say whatever they want to say, right? Yeah. When you're the president and when you're the party in control, bottom line, it's all your fault. And it's also all your credit too, right? It's all your fault or it's all your credit. Whether or not that is fair, that is. And you have to accept that. I think you brought up a number of good things. It's interesting because you know, when that result in Georgia happened at the, it was literally January 5th. It was the day before the January 6th insurrection. I remember I went on TV and I said, while this is welcome news for Democrats, it actually may make Joe Biden's job harder. Here's Mm -hmm. why. It elevated expectations in a way that I think never was able to be um, re-harnessed. In a 50-50 Senate, and look, I have my critiques of Majority Leader Schumer, but he is limited with what he can do. He has two incredibly um, thorny conservative Democrats in his caucus who do not have any, apparently, any incentive or any rationale to kind of go along with the party line on the stuff that really, really matters to the base of the party. There's nothing he can do about that. He cannot change the makeup of Joe Manchin or Kristen Cinema. And at least in Manchin's case, it's not like there's another Joe Manchin walking around West Virginia that you can elect as a Democrat out of West Virginia. I think Kristen Cinema might find that's a different case in Arizona. That's a different story altogether. So Biden and Schumer are limited by like what the realities are. But I just think the expectations got out of control after Georgia. Because, again, it was a razor thin margin. I actually think Joe Biden probably would have been both more comfortable and also maybe even more effective vis-a-vis expectations as president if there was a split government with Mitch McConnell running the Senate and Nancy Pelosi running the House. I think just quickly in terms of voters, should they be frustrated and you know their expectations of Democrats? I think you could be. I think you could also say Joe Biden to this point has secured over $3 trillion in historic New Deal, Great Society level spending to combat COVID, to fix roads and bridges and infrastructure and broadband across the country. And there's an outside chance that you're going to get another trillion towards social spending. At least if you get a trillion towards social spending, people will be disappointed. Right. So you're looking at probably somewhere in the neighborhood of four to five trillion dollars in real spending that's going to impact people's lives. Is it the number of an infrastructure bill or number of a of a spending bill that people imagined at blue skies at the beginning of last year? No, but that was probably unrealistic in the first place, which is why it's important to manage expectations. So voters are welcome to feel how they want to feel. This is all atmospherics. Look, voters feel like the economy is bad right now. There is a lot of data and evidence that shows the economy is just verifiably not bad. It is being experienced poorly in certain ways because of gas prices and because of prices at the supermarket. I'm not invalidating that. But I think I saw research that said that if you ask people, is the economy doing well? I think it's like 39% say yes. But if you ask them their personal finances, how are they doing? 63% say yeah. That gap is experienced. And so as president, you got to figure out how do you make people feel the love? How do you make people feel the impact of your work. And and that is a place where there are fair critiques of the Biden administration. 
I think that provides such helpful context as we walk into what I think needs to be the probably the end of our questions or the beginning of the end at the very least, which is the midterm. So the conventional wisdom, Joel, is that Democrats are going to lose the House and um, the Senate. And maybe I'm overstating how clear that is in terms of the conventional wisdom. But if you look at history, if you, as you mentioned, the virus is the opponent that nobody can beat. And we, of course, don't know what the virus looks like when it comes to the midterms, but we can guess. And it's not, I don't think, going to look good for those in power. Do you have a different view that that's what happens after the midterms? And um, how does that change how Joe Biden governs? You just said in some ways it might have helped him if he didn't get that slimmest of majorities from the Senate could it in a weird way help the second half of this first term? I think he could certainly potentially be a president who is more comfortable counterpunching than, you know, take your other metaphor, uh, leading the dance as opposed to following in the dance, right? So I, I, as I, as you probably can tell, I do like to do some of these like step back moments, right? So look, any presidency, it's likely you're going to lose your midterm. Historically, in the last, what, 20 five years, the only time that the end party, the party who held control, did not lose um, one or multiple houses of Congress was in 2002. And that was an extraordinary circumstance after 9-11. We are certainly in an extraordinary circumstance right now. So there could be some historic parallels there. But I think it was always in the best case scenario, it was going to be hard for Joe Biden um, to keep the majorities in the Senate and in majorities in the House or grow it. Um, what I'd also say, too, is, look, I worked in Harry Reid's um, leadership office in 2009 and 10 and 11. Um, that was the first two years of President Obama. There were 60 Democratic votes in, this, in the Senate. So it was filibuster proof. You had a big majority in the House. We passed historic things, the Affordable Care Act, Wall Street reform. We repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell. We had a couple Supreme Court justices, the DREAM Act. We got beat in the midterms. Right? <laughs> I mean, so... Midterms are designed to take down parties in control, and that is not a satisfying answer to a lot of partisans, me included, but that's just the reality of being in politics. That's why the window for affecting change is so short. That's why Joe Biden's political capital expires at a certain point, because there's only so long that you're going to have political wins at your back. Um, I do think, however, if I was a Republican strategist, I'd be a little bit worried that I may be losing control of the narrative a little bit, while I think it's likely they will gain at least one and maybe both houses of Congress in this midterm. I think maybe some of the um, breathiness and the coverage is getting a little bit out of hand. Like, yes, I think it's likely that they will, again, be successful um, this cycle. But I also think it's likely the economy recovers in, in a way, again, that's experienced by most Americans. It's possible that COVID goes into a bit of hibernation, or at least we go into a different phase of COVID where we feel differently as a country and where maybe Joe Biden has more legislative victories to brag about. And if you're in that scenario, Democrats have a better shot to at least hold even or maybe stave off the historic losses that I think that most people prognosticate right now. Joel, I have so many more questions for you, but I know that because you're so good at this, your time is limited. So I'm going to end with this one, which is should President Biden run again, or should he be viewed as, I think you used the term, uh, 
transition figure, somebody who bridges the gap? Is it the moment soon for him to say, I've tried to steady the ship and now we're going to have an open primary season? Boy, Jessica, that's a that's a doozy to end on. <laughs> Sorry. Um... <laughs> or why don't I do what we both hear on TV sometimes? With 20 seconds left, do you think that the president should continue to be president? My my favorite type of question. Um, I think it's a totally fair question, and I would answer it this way. I think President Biden probably has to take an honest measure of whether he can do the job um, for a person half his age, 20 years younger. This job leaves you haggard. OK, and to enter that job at age, I believe it was 78, 77, mm-hmm. 78, and you're looking at running for reelection at age 82. That is a tall task. I think there is a certain type of campaign that he was able to run in 2020. And I'd say this with all due respect, that was an uncommon cycle that did not require barnstorming necessarily across the country the way that past elections have required. I think you have to take a measure of whether or not you can do that. I think also a factor here, it's something you brought up earlier, the political salience of Kamala Harris. Is she able to take the mantle of the Biden presidency and carry it forward so that you can successfully complete this kind of relay race-like handoff? All indications from the White House right now, the president's planning to run for re-election. You know, I think it is more than fair for anyone, political observer, voter, whomever, to question whether or not the president is able to do that just because of the mere fact that we've never had a president at this advanced age be president for an extended period of time and run for re-election. I think it's a fair question to ask um, whether or not he should. I trust, I will say this, I've offered a lot of critiques of uh, President Biden. I think despite some challenges they've had with their presidency, this is clearly a man that has a deep love and appreciation of his country. And I think he's got a deep respect for his party. And, and I trust that whatever decision will be made, I think it'll be a responsible decision. I don't I don't think if the president feels like he does not have either the vigor or the desire or the salience to do this, I don't think he is going to hang on just for the sake of it. That does not compute with who Joe Biden is as a public figure. I think he's got good political EQ. EQ is always a good note to end on. Joel Payne, veteran political strategist and commentator. You can find Joel on Twitter at Payne, P-A-Y-N-E-D-C. Joel, thank you for passing judgment with us. This was absolutely a pleasure for me. It was a real pleasure to join you. Thank you for having me. And for everybody else, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok at Levinson Jessica. And we will talk to you next time. We wish everybody a great day. Mm-hmm.